Welcome to the Bleeding Cincy Red podcast. Today we're going to focus on uh, the shocking start to the 2018 season. I don't think either Robert or I or any of you really expected this. We're also going to talk about the best trades in Red's history. And we're going to present, well I'm going to present, our first edition of the year of Stump Robert. I think it's a pretty good one, but I think it's potentially a gettable one. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how close he can get or if he can nail this. Um, quickly, before we get dive into the podcast, I want to remind everybody to uh, follow us on Twitter at Bleedin' Cincy Red. That's without a G. Uh, uh, we During the season, we really try to keep it up and we have a lot of fun on there. So I hope you will join us and join the conversation there on Twitter. And also, if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. We'll really appreciate it. Go Reds! Just to let everyone know, we're at the end of the Phillies series, and I was coming into this season thinking that at this point the Reds would be 10-2, and two, uh, dominating the National League Central, and a couple things went wrong with that. Uh, the first one is that they had a, a rainout game with the Cubs, um, so they've actually only played 11 games instead of 12. And then the other little thing is that uh, they've been losing a whole lot and, uh, you know, are 2-9 and nine now. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, I have to admit, like you, after doing all those best-case, worst-case scenario podcasts, uh, I've been so pumped for this season for months, for months. So excited yeah. to see the young guys perform. And it has gone not only not according to plan, it's gone completely in a nosedive. And uh, it's like finding new ways to lose. We were talking about this right before we uh, started setting up here. But uh, in in the most recent game, when the Reds lost an extra innings to the Phillies, I mean, it seemed like everything went wrong. Billy Hatcher was sending a runner home that he should have never sent home and was out by a mile. Scooter Jeanette hits a home run that's stolen from him that would have given us a lead and probably the win. And uh, I, I think even – I think Jesse Winker had a hit stolen from him. And it just seems like, you know, I hate to say when it rains it pours, but really it's monsooning now in Redsland. Yeah, and, and honestly, when we were doing the best case, worst case scenario thing, I have to say that I did not expect Kevin Quackenbush <laughs> to lead – the reds and uh, bullpen appearances uh that's just <laughs> was not on my radar and if someone had told me that a, a kevin quackenbush would be leading the reds and bullpen appearances may, maybe my view on how the season is going would be a little bit different also if jose peraza was listed as the number two batter in the lineup that might have changed things as well but uh yeah it's been really uh difficult um, it's been difficult to see some of the things that have happened, some of the bad breaks, but also I've just been scratching my head a little bit as 
the some of the moves that Brian Price has been making. I've been very, I think I've been very, very patient compared to the average uh, Reds fan, at least on social media I have, uh, towards Brian Price. But uh, this year, it's almost like um, anything that seems like it would make sense, he's going the complete opposite way. And even based off some of his previous comments of uh, uh, philosophies that he's thrown out there, it seems like he's even going against his own philosophies. And uh, like, I'm just really having trouble uh, figuring out some of the method behind the madness. I believe in all 11 games so far this season, the Reds have had a different lineup uh, batting order. And at the same time during uh, press conferences, he's talking about how, He's trying to find consistency and help people with their confidence, but then, you know, it's com- completely rearranging <laughs> everything every single game, yeah. uh, which makes it hard, I think, in, in my mind, maybe I'm simplifying things too much, is that if you uh, keep the the lineup a little consistent, maybe that helps with consistency a little bit. I don't know, but... Uh... <laughs> I, I'm with you 100%. Like. Uh, to start off, like we're on the same page on a lot of things. And with Brian Price, you've been very patient. I've not only been patient, I, I in general had been an advocate of him a couple of years ago. Uh, I kind of liked his forward thinking. He talked a lot about forward thinking. And, and uh, I, I was very appreciative of that as someone who likes to dive into numbers and, and tries to think outside the box on how to be a better team, especially in a small market. What he's been doing this year makes little sense to me. I think it makes little sense to you and little sense to most Reds fans to the point where Twitter has been calling for his head like crazy. Uh, I just see the people are trying to get Fire Brian Price trending. And while I'm not quite to a Fire Brian Price standpoint yet, I I certainly soured come this uh, season, especially for the reasons that you talked about. I mean, I I don't understand batting Jose Peraza second ever, uh, let alone right now. And... To your note about consistency, um, it's funny because I don't know if I'm a hypocrite here, but in the bullpen, I'm a firm believer of bringing in your best pitcher at the key moment of the game. He shouldn't be reserved for the closing spot. And in the past, Brian Price had talked about this, um, and I thought Iglesias would be used in, in very key situations, but he's been nowhere to be found lately uh, in those situations. And people like Quackenbush or rookies are being brought in. Amir Garrett is nowhere to be found, and and he has a fastball and a changeup that that can really strike batters out. So um, it, from that standpoint, it's almost like there's been a setup and we're holding Iglesias out because we're trying to stick to this so-called consistency in the bullpen. On the opposite side, and why I say I may be a hypocrite, is because I'm 100% with you in the sense that I believe the lineup should be pretty consistent day in and day out. Um, uh, I get that you're going to rotate some of the outfielders and that kind of stuff, but as far as one, two, three, four, five, six hitter as you're going in, those should be slotted. And I think that's important mainly because as an everyday player, when you are trying to get your consistent swing and your mind frame set, that being in the same spot, knowing you're hitting number two every day or you're hitting a number seven every day can help mentally prepare you and help you not worry about that but worry about your swing and getting on base uh, and hitting for power. So, um, uh, I, yeah, I agree. Plus, I mean, you know, like with with the early slots, there are specific roles that uh, those players coming into those slots are um, tasked with doing. And if you keep switching them around in the different slots, then 
it becomes very hard to know exactly what you're supposed to be uh, trying to do in a given situation. And, uh, you know, the number two slot in, in particular, you know, you're either trying to, to move forward somebody around the bases or you're trying to get on base yourself. And uh, process was, I, I believe, 62nd out of 64 qualifiers last year in on-base percentage. This year is off to the same fast start as last year and has zero walks still in the season, which has been a long problem with him. And when he is making contact, it's very weak contact. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, I, I think we've talked about this before, is, you know, he came out pretty good as rookie his first year with the Reds, batting average-wise, but I think pitchers have kind of figured out that he will swing at anything that's anywhere close, so they're giving him lots of pitches that he's getting this weak contact on. You know, he's putting the bat to the ball, but it's uh, ending up in outs. I've been watching him swing an outside off speed pitch, trying to pull it over and over again, which is really hard to do, which is one, causing him to ground out weakly, or two, completely swing and miss, which is, which is maddening. Not that I could do it, so I recognize how difficult this is, but... He, he's shown over the past couple of years to not have a good eye at the plate, and that's really tough, like you said, in order to be uh, one of the top hitters in the lineup. One of the other things I think is kind of funny and sad, and I wondered if you would have thought these two things, which is one, that Tucker Barnhart would have more homers on the season than Votto, Winker, and Jeanette combined. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> and two, that the Reds team would have the same amount of home runs as Bryce Harper 11 games into the season. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard hard to see that. And I think, uh, you know, I haven't pulled up the numbers to confirm this, which is going off the top of my head. But I think the Reds have maybe seven home runs on the season, uh, maybe eight. And I know that like three of them right now are on the disabled list in Suarez and Shubler. So uh, that's very difficult uh, to swallow. Um, I've seen people mention that, well, maybe it's the cold weather is, is hampering, hampering the Reds' home run output. But I've got to tell you, the teams that they're playing are still hitting home runs. So it's not... It's not something that's, you know, the Reds are playing at a different temperature than the teams that they're playing against. <laughs> I, I always thought that that argument was very weak. I saw that on Twitter a couple of times, and it was maddening because I thought the same thing. I was like, well, these other teams are also playing in 30-degree weather, and they seem to be hitting bombs left and right. So I don't know what's causing the power outage. Um, and the the good news is I baseball tends to be tends to average itself out over the course of the year. Um, unlike a lot of other sports where it's like in, in basketball, when you lose it, you just kind of lose it. And, uh, in football is kind of the same thing. You can be a star running back one year and then the next year you're not very valuable in baseball. You know, you may have the, the odd season where you are amazing or really underperform, but for the most part, most years you're relatively consistent. So I do believe that this power is going to come and we're going to have a, a string of, of games where we're just like mashing the ball. But for the moment, I have no idea what's happening. I, I In the back of my head, I, I think somewhat it has to do with that consistency issue. But um, I honestly just 
don't know what's what's causing the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. My the two people I was the highest on coming into this season are both on the disabled list. I, you know, I have a, a huge, I guess, I guess you would say, man crush on Scott Shubler. Uh, I expected him to do big things this year. Uh, he immediately got injured um, in the first series, and Suarez uh, was leading the Reds in batting average, home runs, and RBIs when he uh, got hit with that pitch. And uh, you know, luckily, it sounds like right now the the news is positive. They think that he'll be back within the month. I hope that's true um, because he was getting he was actually like the the one part of the team that was uh, providing a little bit more offense than anyone else. I know that Joey Votto has a history of sometimes coming out kind of cold at the beginning of the season, so I'm not worried about him. I know he'll get things going. Um, and then I'm also I'm, I'm really interested to see if uh, Senzel's called up this weekend. Right now, uh, there's the potential that he is uh, based off of him being moved to third base in uh, – Louisville, and uh, I, I think it's either on uh, the thirteenth, thirteenth or fourteenth. Uh, once he gets to that date, uh, the Reds have that uh, extra year of control that uh, everyone talks about for for rookies. And uh, apparently, the Reds front office are at least considering the possibility of bringing him up and. You know, I'm kind of hopeful that if they do, that maybe he'll take that number two slot from Peraza. Honestly, I think the Reds could put about anyone else in that number two slot and get better results than Peraza. Honestly, I think it's kind of hilarious that they moved Billy Hamilton down to the number nine slot because of his on-base percentage woes. And then they move up to number two, a guy that has worse on base percentage <laughs> numbers. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just I, I, like, I, that, that's one of those head scratching things this year that's like just driving me a little bit crazy. And I think it's really driving other uh, fans crazy, especially the ones who are really pushing for his job right now. I, I couldn't agree more. It made no sense to me. I, I don't understand why if you're going to move somebody up there without uh, a high on base percentage why you don't move Billy Hamilton back either in that one or two role with Winker right next to him mainly because uh, Peraza's quick but he's not Billy Hamilton quick he's not scores from first base on a single quick you know and if you so if you're going to have to have somebody up there and you can't pick anyone else and you're afraid that Scooter Jeanette isn't the right person or Tucker Barnhart isn't the right person um if you don't think any of these guys are a fit, then um, I, I don't see how you could possibly not at least put Billy Hamilton there for the time being. Just because on the rare occasion he gets on base, he does wreak complete havoc and you do have an opportunity to score a run. Whereas Peraza doesn't do that much. I love that you brought up Sinzel. You were reading my mind and I'm curious your take on this. So say we get to the 14th and we have the extra year of control. And should... The Reds call up Nick Senzel if they know in three weeks Suarez will be back. And the follow-up to that is, if the answer is yes, you still bring him up for those three weeks. After that, what happens? Do we burn a whole year just for those three weeks? Like, what happens? Well, I 
At first, I was totally against the Reds doing that because of the whole Super 2 status. I was thinking long-term and all that. But <clears throat> the Super 2 status just means that, you know, you could end up getting more money from the Reds during the time that they control them. But the more I've sat down and thought about it, the more I think that this is the perfect time to bring up Senzel because they're still going to have that control. If he kind of bombs a little bit, the Reds would be justified in throwing him back down to AAA if, when Suarez is ready. And uh, he, he won't be accruing time on the Major League roster. And he could actually get back to where he's in that Super 2 status uh, because he hasn't accrued the same amount of time as other rookies. Um, on the other hand, if he comes in and he's just like killing it and Suarez comes back, you can keep them both in the infield, move one of them to shortstop. I don't know which one. My, my inclination is that Senzel is probably the one who's better suited to move to shortstop or second base. Um, depending on how uh, Jeanette's coming along and Peraz is coming along. And, uh, you know, you've just got that much more firepower in the lineup. I, I really see it as like it's a win-win right now situation where they, they can't possibly lose because of Sensel's. They really get a chance to see what Sensel is ready for at this moment. And then uh, it's like a three-week, four-week trial period till Suarez comes back and then they can make that decision then like is he ready is he not ready and if he's if he's killing it and the reds uh have their infielder of the future whichever position since ends up playing uh the super two status thing won't even matter anyways because they'll start looking towards extending him uh before you know all those big contracts come up later anyways yeah all good points I ultimately, I I don't know where I fall on bringing him up or not bringing him up, mainly because of that. If he comes up and kills it, and Suarez comes back, if the Reds aren't comfortable putting him at shortstop or playing him every day at second and suddenly pushing Scooter out of the lineup, then I I certainly don't want him on the bench just sitting there doing nothing. And I really don't want a, a, a weird rotation. Like I'm already kind of uncomfortable with the outfield rotation that was going on. Um, I, I'm dealing with it mentally, <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I don't. Well, like the crazy it. thing with that outfield rotation, I don't know what you think is that at first I thought Brian Price was going to try to line up like left-handed batters with uh, the appropriate pitchers and and the same, you know, <laughs> try try to play the matchup some, but uh, that didn't seem to be the case when uh, Shubler was was healthy. He, <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like Price was just like kind of, I'm just going to rotate them, and uh, you know it's not going to matter if it's a right-handed pitcher or left-handed pitcher. It's not going to affect it at all. Right, <laughs> which and just seems to go against the whole analytics uh, approach that the Reds have been preaching the whole time. Yeah, opening day seemed to be the really the only day that they did that with Max Scherzer on the mound because I remember he lined it up, no Duvall in the lineup, and I was like, okay, that 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 makes sense. Um, and also that there was another time where, where Winker was in the lineup, but he got dropped down. Like he's been hitting lead off and then he got moved down. It made no sense whatsoever. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what that ultimate plan is. Uh, I guess we, we have a little bit more time to find out 
uh, or we have a little bit more time before we find out because of Shebler on the disabled list, which was disappointing because, uh, you know, I'm not as high on Shebler as you are, but I clearly believe that, I mean, he, he was adding offense, which is something that several of our guys haven't been doing very much of. So, um, and I will give a hat tip real quick to Philip Urban, who's come in and I, I think playing well. Playing I do well too, for, I think so. Yeah. For coming off the bench. I, uh, I still don't expect him to see a lot of starting time uh, unless, you know, Billy Hamilton just completely doesn't get on base. Um, and I still think Adam Duvall is going to snap out of it. I'm not overly worried. Although I did read a stat. I think it was shared by Lance McAllister. And it was a brutal stat that was something like, since July 1st, right around there of last year, Adam Duvall's numbers have been really brutal. He's been hitting under 200, and the, and the power hasn't been that big. And, uh, you know, hopefully that, that isn't the real trend here and that he's just off to a cold start. But if that is a trend, then that certainly makes me nervous and certainly would open the gateway for a winker, Shebler Hamilton outfield. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean with Duval. I know 2016 and 2017, he followed a pattern of starting off hot and then uh, chilling off a little bit at the ends of both seasons. Uh, I think one of the differences is this year he hasn't started off hot the first 11 games, uh, but luckily it's only 11 games, so hopefully. Um, he starts to even out a little bit by the end of the month. We'll, we'll see where it goes. But, yeah, I mean, the one thing about baseball is sometimes uh, that stuff kind of takes care of itself and the four-man rotation starts to take care of itself as well. So we'll we'll see what happens. I totally agree with you. I'm glad you brought up Irvin. He's He did pretty good last year and there's a little bit of time with the club, and he's doing good so far this year, really, really uh, happy with it. I don't think we usually make – outside of people who are ready to jump on the club soon. We don't talk too much about minor league people, but I was wondering if you saw all the crazy uh, hoopla around Hunter Green, our number one pick from last year. I was watching. It wasn't his very first pitch, 100 miles an hour. Yeah, and I think he uh, even he threw three innings. I think even in the third final inning, he was still hitting 100, and uh, reportedly the, the temperature was in the 30s. And um, he's he's just re- really letting it <laughs> letting it loose and uh, a lot warmer in the catcher's glove, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, you know, he was like hovering when he wasn't hitting a hundred. He was hovering in the ninety-seven to ninety-nine mile an hour range. And then, uh, you know, some people were making a little bit of contact. They were sitting on that fastball, so then he started changing the um, doing. I, I guess it was his breaking ball which was dropping down into the eight low 80s, and that was getting people to strike out. So um, good good first start for him. He's, he's still uh, you know, years away from uh, hitting the Reds uh, organization or hitting the Reds team, but, uh, but that's good. It's good to see that uh, our number one uh, pick, the number two guy overall, but a lot of people said he was the number one prospect and a generational prospect, and if he's hitting 100 mile an hour uh, fastballs as a starter uh, for multiple innings, that's pretty pretty amazing. Pretty good stuff. Agreed. Even if we have a cold start to this season, it still looks like the future is bright, and that that gives me hope. Um, 
And it's funny, Hunter Green is the closest we've come to talking about pitching for the first part of the season, which I think is kind of a good thing. Uh, I don't want to dive too much into that because we'll have to move on to our, our next segment. Um, but if our guys can continue to kind of lock things down, Homer took you know a no-hitter into the sixth inning the other day. Um, they haven't been perfect for sure, but but they are starting to get more and more comfortable, and I think that's a good thing. Um, finally, before we get into our second topic, I want your take on uh, what do the Reds need to do to get out of this funk and turn things around over the next couple weeks? Well, I, I think the main thing, I, I do agree with Price that I think just need a little bit more consistency. And, you know, for me, that's like a top-down approach, though. I know Price is talking about the team. I, I think, you know, the coach uh, needs to have a little bit of consistency as well um, with setting his lineups and how he's using his bullpen um, and hopefully starts using some of his better pitchers uh, from the bullpen in high-leverage uh, places because I – for me, it's just sending a signal that you're not trying to win. If you're in a tie game on the road in the eighth inning and you throw out a, a Quackenbush or a Gallardo, who luckily isn't on the team anymore, instead of a Garrett or an Iglesias or you know even a Hughes, just somebody who signals to the team that, yeah, we're tied, it's the eighth inning, but we're trying to win this game still. We're not just throwing somebody out there and waiting until... Uh, the bats do it uh, and give us the lead before we start throwing out the, the high leverage pitchers. We're, we're gonna we, we're gonna show that we have confidence that you're gonna score us some runs if we keep the score tied. So, yeah, I I think that the beginning of this season, uh, I I'm hopeful it's still an anomaly, and I'm with you. I think the consistency out of a lineup will be important. I think getting Suarez and Shebler back. Um, though other teams have to deal with injuries. So, you know, not that I want to make, say, ah, you can't use that as an excuse. When you're a small market team without massive bench depth, and we do not have massive bench depth, then losing a, a key cog in your lineup or two can do a lot of damage, especially when the other guys aren't hitting. So hopefully that turns around soon. I, I think that that's the number one key is for these guys to start making some better contact get more comfortable at the plate and for the glove of God uh, hitting more doubles and homers and getting a little power in there. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm always on base, on base, on base. Like I'm that on base guy, you know, your goal is to not make it out at the same time. It's tough to score runs in those situations where we've got two on or one on and you know, less than two outs. And, <laughs> or and or get, the base is loaded and no outs. Or the base is loaded. Score anything. Oh man, that is always so maddening to see happen that we can't push one run across. And uh, these big hacks and the big strikeouts in those key situations are just maddening. Um, so hopefully that, that cuts back. Better contact, uh, stronger contact. And I think that that is one of the number one keys to getting this season turned around. So, All right, let's move on to topic number two today, which is... We're going to talk about the some of the best trades in Reds history. And now I've, I've got a list of a handful. I think you have a list of a handful. Um, so I thought maybe what we could do is um, we'll start. I'll let you start. You can dive in. Um, do you have yours in an order? I don't have mine in a particular order or anything like that. 
Um, I do have mine in an order, but okay. we can just go go at them, and we would probably, I imagine we probably got some of the same trades showing up on our list. Uh, just let everyone else out there know we we try not to share too much of what we have with each other ahead of the show, just so that uh, uh, we can surprise each other. So um, agreed, and <laughs> and uh, and so I, we may have some overlapping. We may not. I figure if we each do about three or so, that that would be pretty good. Um, I I did want to make this note in the research, and maybe you saw this too. That I, and I didn't know this, but the very first trade ever made in the history of Major League Baseball was the Cincinnati Reds, and they made a trade with the St. Louis Browns on June thirtieth, eighteen eighty six. Um, according to Fox Sports, in that swap, the Reds sent hometown kid Jack Doyle to the Browns for this speedy outfielder named Hugh Nickel. And uh, the only notable thing I noticed about this, other than uh, both players were out of baseball by age 32, uh, Nickel, who came over for us, ended up uh, setting a record for the Reds by swiping 137 bases in that uh that the next season for the Reds and ended up stealing 345 bases total over the four years he played for us. So I thought that was kind of cool. It sounded like uh, the player we traded away did real well for the St. Louis Browns. So it was kind of like one of those win-win trades back in the day. But I, the point is, I thought that was a cool trivia fact is that the Reds who've had a lot of firsts also had the very first trade in, in baseball history. Of course, of course. <laughs> Reds. The Reds have had uh, that, that sound looks sounds like a great trade. Anytime you can get a guy that can steal a hundred plus bases in a trade, that's awesome. I, I love the speed guys. Um, but uh, for me, uh, you know, doing all this research was really cool and eye opening. I already had some trades in mind uh, before even doing the research, but uh, the Reds have been on the good end of some trades including maybe one of the best trades in major league baseball history when they traded with the astros in 1971 to get future hall of famer joe morgan four-time gold glove winner cesar geronimo uh pitcher jack billingham who is 26 all-time uh, wins leader for the reds uh ed armbrister who single-handedly may have helped the Reds win Game 3 of the 1975 World Series by colliding with Carlton Fisk, and is also inducted into the Bahamas National Hall of Fame, which, you know, he might be the only Cincinnati Red who's, who's a member of that Hall of Fame. <laughs> and then uh, Dennis Menke really didn't uh, accomplish as much, but four of those five played huge roles in the Reds' uh, Big Red Machine years. And uh, the Astros got, in return, Lee May, who was a two-time All-Star for the Reds before the trade, only made it one more time, which was his first year with the Astros, and then played a good but uh, not All-Star-like uh, career after that. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, who had all of 164 at-bats uh, and a 207 batting average, and uh, Tommy Helms, who was a Rookie of the Year, two-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner with the Reds, but then won no awards after the trade and only played three full seasons after the trade. So 
Uh, this trade in Astros history goes down as one of the worst trades that the organization ever made. And uh, for the Reds, uh, it helped propel them to uh, super high heights. Suck it, Astros. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I, I didn't get an opportunity. I would have liked an opportunity to talk to some folks who were around at that time and, and could tell us the reaction because uh, neither you or I were born then. And so uh, I don't know. Like, looking back, it's easy for me to say, like, oh, trading away Lee May, Tommy Helms, and Jimmy Stewart for Joe Morgan alone would have been worth it. You factor in Cesar Geronimo and Jack Billingham and the other pieces, like – it does. It does look like the Astros' worst trade in history. Um, but at the time, I have no idea what was going through the minds of fans or, or front office uh, folks. And like you said, Tommy Helms was a good trade ship at the time. I mean, he was considered pretty valuable at that moment. So was Lee May. Um, and the yeah. Reds could afford to move Lee May because of Tony Perez uh, being able to move over to first base. So that's funny. I, I did. I agree. I had that trade at, at the top of... Um, that's got to be the best trade in Reds history, in my opinion. Um, and going through this, I think one of the other, I, while this may not have been the best trade in Reds history, I still consider this one of the most exciting trades in the history of the Reds. And that was on February 10th, 2000, when the Reds bought one of the best players of all time, Ken Griffey Jr., home to Cincinnati. And I have that on my list. Um, I know we can all talk about the injuries and we can talk about how maybe he didn't live up and we thought he was going to hit 800-some home runs, which no player has ever done. So that was a big burden <laughs> to put on his shoulders. But he was coming off of uh, two fifty, I think 56 homer seasons right when he came over here. And people forget that the very first year he got here, uh, he started off a little cold, probably from some nerves, uh, probably from no longer playing indoors and playing outdoors in, in some cold weather. But he did manage to hit over 40 home runs, led the team in RBIs, and helped lead the Reds to a second-place finish. I mean, I, I think it was really our pitching that let us down, not Ken Griffey Jr. And it's exciting in the sense that he did hit career homers number 400, number 500, and number 600 in a Cincinnati Reds uniform. Um which he, he did them all on the road in, I think it was Colorado, St. Louis, and Miami, which is a little frustrating because I would have loved to have been there for any one of those exciting moments. But he did provide a spark. He got people talking about Reds baseball. And the child in me, whose two favorite players growing up when I was real young were Barry Larkin and Ken Griffey Jr. to have them both on the same team was amazing. So even though he didn't help bring us a championship and even though there were years where he was kind of riddled with injuries and toward the end his numbers, you know, started to dip like most human beings who play baseball and aren't on HGH tend to do. Um, I still consider this one of the greatest trades in Red his in Red's history, if anything alone from being bring one of the greatest players home uh, for us to enjoy. Yeah, totally. I remember when that trade was made. As far as like first reactions to different trades, uh, even if you throw that Joe Morgan one in there, I'm sure that the King Griffey Jr. one is probably the most exciting trade for a Reds fan ever just because he was the hometown kid. King Griffey Sr.'s son, I mean, you know, there was just so much 
tied into that beyond uh, just that, you know, you're getting a really good player. You're getting uh, Cincinnati Moeller, uh, baseball star. I mean, homegrown, uh, both uh, location-wise and history-wise for the Reds organization. I mean, there, there was nothing more exciting, uh, especially with uh, everything they accomplished in Seattle uh, up to that point. I mean... He was already uh, a Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he had already done enough. If something had happened uh, that was horrible, that, uh, you know, just ended his career, like the day of the trade, he was already a Hall of Famer um, just because he was already, like, uh, just from that decade uh, in Seattle, had done so much. But... He, he still did, as you mentioned, he still hit so many milestones in the Cincinnati Reds uniform. Uh, we would have to break out the tape to compare everyone's swings, but I don't know if anyone in baseball history for the entire major leagues has ever had a prettier home run swing than Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, it just looked like he would just scoop the ball and fling it out into the stands. I mean, it, it just... Uh, there's nothing really to describe or compare it against uh, as far as just such a pretty swing. So. No, it was so smooth. It was so fast. And like you said, that ball just seemed like it seemed like taking a fly swatter and just swatting it out of the park. And that was a lot of fun to watch. Quickly before we move on to the next one, curious, do you remember where you were when that trade happened? Oh, you know, I, I think I was uh, – you know, I'm afraid of manufacturing memories sometimes. <laughs> but I think I was actually uh, uh, working at a UDF at the time when, uh, for, for some reason, I'm thinking uh, that I found out why I was working a shift at United Dairy Farmers. But oh, cool. uh, I could just be completely making that up. I, I was but, just... I was just curious because I think that that trade, why it made one of the reasons it made my list, is because I believe a lot of folks uh, our age or even within a decade uh, before us and after us, a lot of us really remember. It's like one of those "where were you" moments uh, because I remember distinctly. I, I was at college at Ohio University. I was in my dorms. I had been reading for months about the trade of Ken Griffey Jr. and how we were on the short list and how we were on the short list and that short list kept getting shorter and shorter. As uh, he was trying to do the right thing, in my opinion, for Seattle by telling them he wasn't going to stay and trying to get the most value. And then they did turn it as kind of this PR campaign against them, unfortunately. Um, and so when he finally, when that deal was made, I was, I was, I was at Ohio University. We were going to drive home that day to visit, um, come home to visit family and friends. And I remember driving with other friends who were Reds fans and we were, we heard the news and we were just off the walls excited. And, uh, and, and yeah, still yeah, to I this mean, day, I, I remember that very fondly. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the risk of manufacturing memory, it just, it just seems like I was, I was working at United Dairy Farmers, which, you know, is Cincinnati based, uh, at the university of Cincinnati. And it just seems like, you know, found out about the trade and like all day, like people would come in and just start talking about it, you know, and asking, you know, did you hear about it? And of course, you know, I had and everyone that came in, you know, we were all brothers and sisters that were all Reds fans, you know, that uh, were excited about 
what what this meant uh, for the Reds going forward. I mean, I think I think when the trade was made, everyone thought you know we're going to win like six World Series in yeah. a row. <laughs> so, it, like, was, it was pretty big for like two months. I mean, no no pressure at all. <laughs> no no pressure. For like two months, everybody was wearing their hat backwards. You know, we were happy. We were yeah. you know it's the happiest the city has probably ever been. Um, so yeah a lot of a lot of pressure on him so anyway anyway so that was one of my top best trades in reds history yeah so there there are so many i've i'm actually going to break out of uh the order that i have here and go to my number five uh best trade for the reds just because it's the sentimental one since you brought up the sentimental one with king griffey jr and this is one where i can remember distinctly remember the trade uh because of the person we were letting go at the time, I felt like, why are, why are we letting go of them? And, and I, I have to say, you know, I was, uh, this trade was made in 1987. So I was like, I was like maybe nine at the time uh, playing Little League. Um, and uh, we traded away Dave Parker for this uh, pitcher that I didn't know much about at the time named Jose Rio from the Oakland A's. And um, I have to say, by by 1990, probably by 1989, 1988, uh, to be honest, when we would be playing wiffle ball games in our front yard, and I was pretending who I was as a pitcher, I was pretending that I was Jose Rio. And uh, this will um, always go down as like one of my favorite trades for the Reds. And uh, it led, he was the ace of staff for the 1990 World Series champion Reds. And, uh, you know, it was something where at the time when the trade was made, I was like, oh, why are we letting go of Dave Parker? I like Dave Parker and Eric Davis in and, and the outfield. But uh, I think it, it benefited the A's. But ultimately, I, I'm not sure that the Reds win a World Series in 1990 if they don't have Jose Rio on the team. I don't think they win the World Series either. I mean, I believe he was the MVP of the World Series with two really dominating starts. Uh, It's funny because that one wasn't on my list, but I had read through it and it was very close. And I like Dave Parker too. In fact, you know, looking back, it blows my mind that the Reds had traded for such a great player in Dave Parker to have him in the first place. Um, And then to let him go seemed like a very difficult thing. Of course, Jose Rio came on, you know, became a legend here in Reds history, leading us uh, in that magical 1990 season and having several great seasons. And in fact, coming back, I forget the year, I didn't write it down, uh, but I believe it was around 2002 where he was making his comeback. And uh, and I actually went to, I don't remember his first start or one of his first starts. It was in Chicago and I was living in Chicago at the time against the Cubs. And he came out and we watched him pitch against the Cubs and that was a lot of fun. So sentimentally, I agree with you. I, I think that was one of the better trades in Reds history, even if it cost us, you know, more than a Tommy Helms and a Jimmy Stewart to yeah. make it happen. Uh, no offense to those guys. I'm sure they're lovely people. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that uh, bringing Jose Rio in should be considered one of the, the best trades in Reds history. Um, to go along kind of with, with what you were saying, um, in trades that really worked out. I, I consider this to be one of the best trades in Reds history as well, this next one I'm going to pull up here. And I say this knowing that the Reds have scooped up a lot of good players 
from Cleveland, um, and we can go over them later. But <laughs> the number one great trade that I think we got from them, it was really a heist, was when we acquired Brandon Phillips in 2006 for a player to be named later, and that player to be named later. Can, could you name him? I don't know if you have him on your list or anything, but could you name that player to be named later? I could not. Ah, I couldn't either. I looked it up, and it was Jeff Stevens. And so Jeff Stevens is the name of the player. Um, and he did he did nothing for the Indians, absolutely nothing. And <laughs> the great Jeff Stevens. <laughs> the great uh, Jeff Stevens. And all Brandon Phillips did from 2006 on until uh, two years ago, uh, his last year with the Reds, was Wallace with his glove consistently hit around 270, hit for some power, steal some bases, and became a, a fan favorite. Show up at Little League softball or Little League baseball games here in Cincinnati out of nowhere. It would show up at softball games. Uh, became that dude BP on Twitter. And I know there are there were moments, and, and some people would get annoyed with him because of his personality. Um, I absolutely loved it. He smiled on the field all the time. And the production we got out of him for a player to be named later, um, and Brandon Phillips will one day be in the Reds Hall of Fame, uh, I have to consider that one of the best trades in Reds history. Yeah, and he was definitely a person who uh, seemed to adjust, like if when you're looking at the batting lineup, seemed to adjust his approach to whatever slot he was in the lineup and and do his job at that slot. So uh, he, he was just, he was, uh, there's a lot to be said about um, his personality at times. Like I, I've never really had a problem with it. I, I know that other people have. Um, I always thought that it was the kind of swagger the Reds kind of needed at times. Uh, just to have that personality, but um, he uh, he always seemed to do whatever was needed for the, for the team, and and that was great to see. Like you know, if he was in there and we needed to clutch hit, I felt like he gave us as good a chance as anybody to get that clutch hit uh, every time. I never uh, saw a, a time when he came up where I, I didn't think he at least had a chance to come through uh, for the team, whether they needed a, a double, a sacrifice, a home run, whatever, whatever it was at the time. So Yeah, and in the field, in the field, he quickly, uh, you know, you you never know what amazing thing you were going to see when he was playing second base. I mean, you can look up the behind-the-back flips to Joey Votto to get outs. You can look mm-hmm. up the the infamous butt tag where I forget who it was slid into him. I mean, you can look that up on YouTube and see it. And he still got the tag down and, and got the out. Um, and, and some of the over shoulder catches. I remember a game where he was running into foul territory to make a catch. And the runner at third tried to tag up and he threw him out running away from the field. Um, it's just things like that that will stick with me forever. And his big smile and the fact that he loved being red. I know we've talked about this before, but I will always have a special place in my heart for players who are loud about it. And he would always say, you know, this is how we play Reds baseball. Like he was mm-hmm. part of our family. Um, and I know Barry Larkin was one of his favorite players growing up. So all those things combined. He will, I, I still have a Brandon Phillips jersey t-shirt that I wear. Um, is I, I, he will always be one of my favorites. And in, in my mind, it's one of the best trades the Reds ever made. Yeah, definitely. That's a good one. Um, I'm going to go 
really old school here uh, with this next one. Uh, back to 1916 and a trade with the Giants. And I think this one was a really cool one for the Reds just because all three guys that the Reds got uh, in this trade are all in the Hall of Fame now. And uh, they got Ed Roush, um, who uh, was a the, – the more – I've always known Ed Roush uh, being in the Reds, uh, uh, you know, one of the top batters and everything. But the more that I learn about Ed Roush, the more that I appreciate him. He he used a 48-ounce bat, which was even super heavy back then. Like, it was – it's it's like a big piece of <laughs> – like a log or something. It's, <laughs> it's like a Paul Bunyan bat. And, and he claims that he never broke a bat in his career, which, you know, if he's got a 48-ounce bat, no wonder he's never broken – he never broke a bat in his career. Uh, still managed to never strike out more than 25 times during a season. Uh, so as great as Joey Votto is, uh, you know, just looking at Roush, I'm like, wow, this is uh, incredible. Only 170 strikeouts his entire career out of uh, more than 5,000 at-bats. Uh, Joe Morgan called him the best of us all. Uh, hit 30 inside-the-park home runs. Uh, you know, Ed Rush is just awesome. Anyways, he's just one piece. <laughs> then we also got Bill McKechnie uh, as a player. He would later come back to the Reds and uh, coach them uh, to the 1940 World Series Championship uh, Hall of Famer. And then uh, the final Hall of Famer, he only started one game for the Reds, so it's not like the Reds got a big uh, bonus out of him. But uh, the third player throw-in one is Hall of Famer Christy uh, Mathewson, who uh, was an amazing uh, pitcher uh, for the Giants. So uh, that's a really cool trade. It's called uh, historically called the Hall of Fame trade uh, that the Reds made, and uh, they sent off uh, Buck Herzog and Red Killifer, um, which is fine. But but the Reds, especially with Roush. Uh, for the Reds. You can just look at their all-time uh, batting stats to see his name pop up all over the place. But uh, but anytime you get three Hall of Famers in a trade, it's, it's cool whether they do much for your team or not uh, as players. Yeah, I, Ed Roush is one of those players that I would have loved to have been able to see. Like I think back in Reds history, and everybody uh, who wasn't old enough to see the Big Red Machine obviously would have loved to be able to, you know, go back in time and, and and be in a couple of games where they they played together like that would have been a lot of fun um but there are very few other players where i think back and think damn i really wish i had an opportunity to see this guy in a red leg uniform and he is toward the top of the list i mean he, he carried an on-base percentage of uh of 369 almost 370 for his entire career um when he was with the reds the average was higher than that it, it was honestly closer to 400 um and and it's weird because when I I was looking this up and I was trying to look up the stats and when I did I was looking at his stolen bases and and he was a pretty good stolen base threat too you know averaging mm -hmm. twenty twenty some steals a year, um, 
but I also noticed there were some years where he got caught stealing a ton too. Um, so I don't know if he was the fastest guy out there or he was just very aggressive. But I think that sounds like that that may have been part of his personality, and so that that would have been a, a lot of fun um, to get to see. So having three Hall of Famers come over in a trade has to always go down as one of the best in history, um, even if you know one of them. Could you imagine if we kept uh, Christy uh, Matthewson? Like, I- yeah. Well, I think I think what ended his career is he went for. Um... I was watching a baseball documentary recently, and I think uh, uh, Christy Mathewson went out for uh, service in World War One, and uh, his uh, lungs and, and body got damaged uh, by uh, nerve gas. Uh, didn't kill him, but uh, effectively ended his baseball career. So it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, what what might have happened... Uh, had that not happened um, after the trade, so gotcha. So wait, so remind me was because I I don't remember this. I I didn't look into it so much. So do we get him after his Hall of Fame ishness? Or uh, yeah, so so okay, yeah, so, so he, he had he had done. He was kind of like Ken Griffey Jr. He had okay. put up the Hall of Fame uh, numbers already. Uh, unfortunately, then World War One broke out and. Uh, effectively ended his career with him only having one start for the Reds. So. Gotcha. Okay, I was a little confused there because I didn't know. Uh, I, I actually wasn't sure on that part of the trade. So, anyway. Well, that stinks. It would have been cool, but it, it's still an amazing trade. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I'll tell you this. I, I, I've got one more big trade to go off of, and then you can finish this out if you got another one. Um, and, and before I do that, I, I had several other trades that I was considering. Uh, like I said, with the Indians, it really seemed like we just were stealing people from the Indians for a while there. And I mean, we gave <laughs> up Dave Burba and John Smiley, and we gave up some good good players. So th- there's nothing to to be ashamed there. But I mean, we went through this period where we got Danny Graves, and we got the Mayor Sean Casey, my sister's favorite player, and Shin Su Chu. Um, I mean, we, we just got a bunch of players from them. I, I thought Brandon Phillips topped it personally um, oh, yeah. for his longevity. Sean Casey, everybody loves Sean Casey, but but Brandon Phillips I think was probably worth it. But I am going to dive back away from the Indians. And for my, I, I think for my final best trade in Reds history, uh, I'm actually going with Tom Seaver, which we got from the New York Mets on June 15th, 1977. Um, I know it was just after the big red machine back-to-back world series and to know that right after that happened as a fan we added one of if not the best pitcher in the national league at the time to that that amazing uh lineup just had to be super exciting like i have to believe that that wasn't far off the ken griffey jr deal um back in 2000 for us the fans here must have been incredibly excited and he did go on to pitch extremely well for the Reds. Unfortunately, uh, we did not make it uh, to another World Series championship. Um, but he did pitch for the Reds for six amazing seasons. And he went 75-46 and 46 and posted a 3.18 ERA. So, uh, to me, that has to rank up there as one of the best trades uh, in Reds history. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that, that one was great. And uh, for my final one, uh, there were a few that I thought were very notable. Um, 
you know, Pete Rose coming over from the Expos was cool just because he got to break the record in the Reds uniform. Uh, Epirixi back in 1921. Uh, no one's probably seen him pitch, but uh, he holds uh, almost all of the pitching records for the Reds. Most wins, most innings, most games started. Uh, so it was cool getting him from the Phillies. But uh, the one that I really want to focus in on uh, that's comparable to the Joe Morgan heist uh, and, and made during the same year, 1971, is when the Reds got this play, George Foster from the Giants, who had not really done anything yet. He, I think it was only like maybe in his second season when he came over to the Reds. Uh, and they traded these players, Frank Duffy, who was mainly a bench player, uh, played 10 years, had 240 RBIs in his career, so like 24 RBIs a year. Uh, 232 batting average and uh, pitcher Bern Geishert who had 31 total innings that he pitched in the majors, uh, a career one and one record 465 ERA and return. The Reds got George Foster who with the Reds was five time all-star one MVP uh, and three times was top three uh, voting and MVP voting. Uh, I have to say that was quite uh, the steal, uh, which at the time may may not have seemed like such a big trade because, like I said, he had not done much yet at the major league level. And, uh, you know, that one really panned out. You put that together, that trade together with the Joe Morgan uh, trade, both in the same year, no wonder uh, something like the Big Red Machine all of a sudden happens. And uh, I just got to say, with all the different trades the Reds have been making during this rebuild, if one or two of them somehow end up working out the way that these did, uh, that would be exciting and, and great. And it's great that, you know, the Big Red machine, when you look historically, really took off, you know, big time, you know, World Series time in 1975, 1976. And so that was actually like four years after these trades. So it is something historically to look back and say, okay, uh, you know, sometimes these trades uh, do take, uh, you know, three, four years uh, to really uh, latch on. And hopefully that time is drawing very near for the Reds. That's the optimism I love. The optimism I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty amazing when I was looking back because I did note that trade as I was going through. Um, I didn't select it, although I came close to it. But I, I kept thinking all along, I was like, the Big Red Machine was so perfect because it was a real mix of homegrown talent and Bench and Rose and Perez and the addition of the right pieces at the right time through trade, which was George Foster and Joe Morgan and uh, Cesar Geronimo and everything. So that that I, I think those definitely qualify, in my opinion, as some of the best trades in Reds history. If anybody's out there listening to this and they have their own take, uh, they have a trade that we missed or one that they think should be noted, you know, again, hop on Twitter, follow us at at bleeding without a G, bleeding Cincy Red, and let us know. Or on Facebook at bleeding Cincy Red. So we'd love to hear from you. Finally, in our last segment here, we're bringing it back from the 2018 season. One of my favorites are Stump Robert Trivia, where I come up with a, a question with a bunch of answers, and Robert has to see how many he can get. 
if he gets it all, he's champion of the world. I think any any rating of about uh, 75% or above is good because these aren't easy. Um, but more importantly, I hope everyone who's listening plays along at home and to see how many answers you can get right. So, Robert, are you ready for your first Stump Robert of 2018? I am always ready to be stumped. Good. Here we go. Uh, one of my bold predictions in our first episode of the season was that uh, Rosell Iglesias would lead the league with 48 saves. At this point, it's unclear if the Reds will win 48 games, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> so I'm not sure if this will hold up. Before his career, he really only has 32 career saves all time at, at the time of this recording. So he has a ways to go to become one of the top Red save leaders. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. Robert, can you name the top eight saves leaders all time for the Cincinnati Reds? Okay. Um, yeah, so it's John Franco on there. John Franco is number three on the list. He is indeed on there with 148 saves for the Reds. Okay. Um, One down. Danny Graves? Danny Graves is the all-time leader. You got the all-time leader for the Reds at 182, which hopefully Iglesias will either break one day or it won't it'll be because we traded him away and got, you know, the next Joe Morgan. Okay. Um he wasn't here as long, but as uh, Cordero on that list? Francisco Cordero is on the list. He's number two. He's number uh, okay. two. With 150 saves. So the top three with Danny Graves, Francisco Cordero, and John Franco. And you got him so far. Awesome. Yeah, it doesn't feel like Cordero was here long enough to go up to number two. <laughs> but I guess he was. Uh, so that's cool. Um, that, I think that just speaks to our uh, closer troubles in the, in the past. I think so. I think so. <laughs> I, that, that definitely, uh, yeah. Okay, so... I've I've got one face popping up in front of me that I just can't I remember his name. Um, so let's see. Let's jump around. Maybe I'll, I'll remember the name. Um, what about... Uh, I'm probably only coming up with this guy's name because of when I started really following the Reds. Uh, Tom Hume, is he on, on there at all? He is. He is tied. He's number eight, but he's really tied for six. Three guys have the same amount of saves at 88 saves for the Reds, and he is on the list. You are four for four. He was he was one. There, I think there were two real tough ones. I thought, and I thought he was one of the tough ones. So you got it. Yeah. Um, You're halfway there. Yeah. Living on a prayer. <laughs> it's funny how this song always. <laughs> Takes care of itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's always time to make a Bon Jovi reference. Always. Yeah. Uh, was uh, Chapman, was he here long enough to, to rack up 80-something saves? He was indeed here long enough to rack up not only 80-something saves, but 146 saves. So he's hmm. number four on the list. Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he got to... 80-something, but uh, I'm just going to say Rob Dibble. Rob Dibble is on the list with 88, tied along with Tom Hume. 
Ooh. Yeah, I figured if he made it, he was on in that tie category there. Okay. <laughs> he he did make it. You are yes. on en fuego, my man. All right, six out of eight. That that yeah. means I can just uh, coast <laughs> wave the white flag now. <laughs> Hope the curve keeps you in that A A grade rating. <laughs> Yeah, seventy-five percent. That's a C. I'm I'm passing right now, so that's good. Yeah. Um. Uh, and I'm still picturing the one guy's face. I, yeah. I can't remember his name. Um. Well, you've already done about as well as I would have done. I would have gotten. I I believe I would have gotten six of them. Um, and two I wouldn't have. Tom Hume is one I wouldn't have gotten. Uh, I just he wouldn't have come to mind to be honest. And of the two left, one of them I would have gotten, one of them I I wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, but you have a real shot. Okay. I'm not sure if this is the right name or not, but uh, that last name McDowell is popping into my head. Does that match up at all? No. A McDowell yeah. is not on the list. Yeah. I'm trying I'm to probably think of I'm probably making up a name for somebody that I just can't <laughs> no, remember. You, you could have been thinking of Jack McDowell too, but he didn't play for the Reds, I don't think. Um, he was a longtime pitcher for the White Sox and a few other teams. Yeah, I think he was notorious for once flipping off the crowd. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Well, I'm I'm gonna call I'm gonna call uh, Mercy at uh, six out of eight. <laughs> six out of eight are pretty good. Well, I will yeah. give you a hint for one of them, for number the the other one who's tied with eighty eight. He currently he currently calls radio games for the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. Um, His nickname is the Brantley. Cowboy. Yep. Brantley. Yeah, Jeff Brantley. Brantley. Jeff Should have thought of that one. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the one I think I would have. I'm pretty sure I would have gotten him. Uh, I don't know if I would have known for sure, but I would have certainly guessed him. Um, mm-hmm. The one I wouldn't have got is number five on the list, which is Clay Carroll. Uh, okay, yeah. Not even on the radar. He yeah. wouldn't have been on my radar either, being so much before us that I think it would have been tough. And he came in with 119 saves. So that list, again, for all who are listening, of the top eight saves leaders all time for the Reds were – one, Danny Graves. Two, Francisco Cordero. Three, John Franco. Four, Araldus Chapman. Five, Clay Carroll. And tied for six, so six through eight, are Jeff Brantley, Rob Dibble, and Tom Hume. And I think getting six out of eight is pretty darn good for Robert today. I know you say, like, getting uh, 75% is good. Uh, for me, getting 50%, I always feel good. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, you had a lot of fun playing at home today. I hope everyone really enjoyed this podcast. I want to thank all our listeners out there. We, of course, really uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, I want to remind everyone to, again, follow us on Twitter, at uh, Bleeding Cincy Red. Follow us on Facebook, Bleeding Cincy Red. Um, be sure to tell your friends about the podcast. Rate us on iTunes if you will. We have several. They're all positive. We love it. It's really helping us grow our listenership. And, of course, a special thanks to our all-time favorite Red, Barry Larkin, for listening. I'm sure he's tuned in somewhere. Go Reds!